All right, well, let's open with prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for those who could be here this evening, and we thank you for this opportunity to study this concept of biblical communication. Father, you are eternal. You live in eternity, and you've created a world filled with relationships. Father, you're relational. You relate with your Son. You relate with the Spirit. You relate with the angels. Father, and in that relationship, you communicate on levels that edify, that build up, that promote unity. Father, you speak, and you call us to speak and imitate you in our speaking. So tonight, as your redeemed children, we thank you for initiating relationship with us through words. We pray that you'll help us to reflect you, whether or not it has an effect on the other person. We are learning to be made in your likeness in how we speak. We're sharing in that. So help us tonight to understand what your word teaches us about words and help us to have a heart for you that can make those teachings into a practice, into life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn to page 23 in your outline, if you will. And... um, We're going to be speaking of five rules of communication this evening. But before we do, we want to restate the importance of the heart behind all that we're doing. Uh, What is the heart and how does it promote biblical communication? I want to read for you Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, which we've been talking about in many ways. And it says this. Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then he goes on to say, with all, and here's how to walk worthy, humility, with all gentleness, patience, forbearance and love, diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is a real critical verse in the book of Ephesians because he spent three chapters speaking about how God has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of the body of Christ, how he's made two into one. It's no longer Gentile and Jew, but in Christ, if we're in Christ, he has broken down the barrier of the two and made them into one. So unity is a big theme in Ephesians. And then... He turns in chapter 4 and says, now here's how to live this out. All humility in relationships, all gentleness in relationships, all patience in relationships, all forbearance and all diligence to preserve that work of the Spirit in relationships. So what's interesting about that, then he goes on to speak much about words in chapter 4. And our five rules of communication are going to come straight out of Ephesians 4. The heart behind biblical communication though. Let's examine this before we get too far into those rules. Communication is the lifeblood of all relationships. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, speak the truth in love. Some of you could probably finish that statement. But what does it go on to say? It says, speak the truth in love and we will, in all things, grow up into Christ who is the head. Think about that. Speaking truth in love has an effect. The cause, speaking truth in love to each other. 
the effect we grow up in Christ. Something about our words when we're in Christ to one another, when it's truth and love, nourish each other mutually to promote growth in Christ. It's an amazing reality. Every part doing its uh, part, as it were, in the body of Christ. So God uses words as the primary building blocks or the tools, we could say, in building relationships with each other. But these same tools can be used not to build, but to tear down. It's like a tool in the hands of a murderer versus a tool in the hands of a surgeon, right? Very different way we use it. Romans 3.12.13 says that when it's speaking of mankind falling short of the glory, verse 13 says that our throats are open graves. I don't know if you've been recently to an open grave uh, after the body has been decaying and stinky, right? But God calls our words open graves because something is corrupt with them naturally without redeeming work of the Spirit. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice lies. Practice lies. It becomes a habit. And it goes on in verse 14 of Romans 3 to say, Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and our the poison of snakes is on our lips. So think of that. Our words are lifeblood. But they can be filled, lifeblood can be filled with nutrients or poison, can't it? So if these are the primary building blocks, then when we speak harshly or attack or speak unwholesomely, it's poison. So the same bloodstream that can provide nutrition can provide poison, and our words can do that with each other as it's pumping into our relationships. Bloodstream brings these things, blessing or death. So tonight, the energy that you have for your spouse or shall we say it this way, the energy that your spouse has for you, have you helped that with your words? Have you helped bring health to that relationship, lifeblood to that relationship by how you speak? Or have you helped them lose the energy? A healthy body is an energetic body, isn't it? When you're sick, do you notice how tired you get? So an unhealthy relationship is a fatigued relationship. It's a relationship there's not much energy there because there's not much blood, lifeblood. There's poison in that blood. Past relationships will reflect that. And the tongue, therefore, is a powerful tool in the hands of the one who controls it. Tongue is a powerful tool in the hands of the one who controls it. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So death and life are in the bloodstream, right? Uh, Past relationships that you have had energy for is because largely there is words that are nourishing there. Uh, People have said things to you that have meant something to you. They've built you up in some ways and it has connected you to them. I remember the thing that someone said to me that I will never forget at my mother's funeral. He he looked at me and he said to me as they were going by the casket and then came by me, they said, your mother was a godly woman. She was precious. Now, a lot of other people would say things like, Oh, it's okay. Uh, God is going to do good, and that's fine. But he was able to connect with something that resonated in me, and I remember him to this day because of the word he spoke, right, at that moment, opportune moment. So if we think about lifeblood for a minute as it pumps through our veins tonight, um, we could have a poor amount. We could have a bad quality of blood, but we also could have a poor quantity of blood, right? 
So it's not just the quality of words, but it's the number of words as well, isn't it? We must have both. Um, quality of words, we would again think of Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but word for edification. Or Ephesians 4.15, speak truth in love. See, that's quality, right? That's the quality God calls us to speak. But quantity of words is important too. If we were to look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, I'll just read this to you. It talks about husbands. We're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. But listen to this. He cleanses her by the washing of his words. Anytime God in the Old Testament were withdrew from his people, it was a sign of judgment on them, withdrawing. And he would withdraw his word from them. He would speak no more to them. And it would destroy the relationship. It would, it would turn them over to themselves in a sense. Jesus came and spoke words. And because of his words, we were sanctified. The way he spoke, what he said to us, words that help us to stay renewed in our relationship with him, for him as we await for his return. Words that help us to know what he desires, what he's like. He reveals himself to us in words, right? Not just in behavior, but in words. So lack of words, relationship dies, right? So we got poor quality, but also poor quantity, right? Now I want to think about our bodies for a minute and as the blood is pumping through it and relate it to our words for a minute because Paul's using that analogy of the body here. Um, there are three sort of endpoints in our body that the blood has to pump through to get it to make us healthy. It doesn't mean we will be healthy. It just means that it's there for the health to get to the body. Three endpoints, top of my head, right? It's got to get here. This is the furthest part my blood has to pump is up here, right? I hope it's not any further, right? And my hands, right? They're, they're my fingers. My wife says I have a really wide uh, span here, wingspan, I guess. But my blood, my heart has to pump life blood all the way, pulse blood, all the way out to the end of those hands and my feet, right? So I want you to think three areas in your relationship. If your communication is pumping its life nutrition there, if there's communication in those areas, then you are being sufficient in the quantity of words. You've got to get the quality right. But quantity, let's think of three ways God has called you to relate with your spouse tonight. One is as a brother and sister in Christ, right? So when you think of your brother and sister in Christ, do you communicate? Does your communication pump as a brother and sister? Do you speak words as a brother and sister? Like what, you might say? Prayer request, right? Do you share prayer requests with each other? That's lifeblood in that area of spiritual companionship. Prayer is a form of communication, right? Do you pray with each other? This is good. This is going to nourish that area of your life, just like your body nourishes areas of your life, uh, of your body. Um, growth updates, we could call them. Let's call them growth updates, where I'm speaking to my wife about things I'm growing in, things I'm working through. Let me give you an update on some growth, right? That we, we often neglect this area, but it's the foundation, isn't it? Bible insights. Um, Bible insights. Uh, share, sharing those things. So life blood of relationships are words. One end point that you must get that life blood into is brother and sister relationship, right? Another area is friends, friendship, right? Friendship. Uh, do you communicate to your spouse as a friend would? Do you nourish that? Um, 
laughter and fun may be one way to connect that. Uh, my wife laughs at me in a good way. And we have a good time. That's important. Small talk. Friends do some small talk, right? Men, we're not good at small talk always unless it's, to us, it's big talk about sports. But it's small talk. Uh, wives' topics sometimes to us seem small. Uh, friends talk about small things, right? Do I have words going to her and from her, words to him and from him about small things? Friends. The other thing about friends do is we might call it uh, what I've written down here is uh, topic follow. And you say, what does that have to do? Well, this is just a way that we can connect topic follow. In other words, uh, do do you sit down and, man, this is primarily for us. Uh, Okay, honey, I'm going to follow whatever topic you want to talk about. Right? Let's follow your topic. We want to talk about the kids. And then I enter into that conversation as a friend. Right? Same way, too, if we want to talk about uh, Clemson and, you know, I'm not really a South Carolina fan. I'm from Chicago, but I I try, right? Uh, But the point is, do we follow the topics of our spouse when they want to talk as a friend, right? That's an invitation. Be my friend. Do we have lifeblood going to that area? And then the last one would uh, be lovers. Lovers. We are lovers. My wife and I are lovers. Three A's that I will give you. Uh, um, attraction, words of attraction. Do I say to her, man, your hair is still as beautiful as it's always been. Uh, your eyes, I can, you know, do I talk about her body in a good way, her eyes, her neck, whatever it is, and vice versa, women to men. Attraction, uh, appreciation, right? What I appreciate about you. I need to have some words that are pumping lifeblood into that area of our relationship, uh, appreciation, affection, affectionate words, um, enduring terms like I love you. And What are some of the words that you call each other in a, in a good way that are life-giving? You know those silly words like what? Come on, give me one. I know you all have one. Bed cakes. Bed cakes. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Let's hear one more. Snookums. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. These are words. But all these areas. So we have a spiritual, a social, and a physical dimension that our lifeblood, just like our heart, must get to the end of that, must get into that. And so if you're doing that, then you are encouraging building up truth and love, wholesome words. It's the quality and the quantity. So why don't men and women speak quality and quantity to each other? Why don't they let the tongue be used in a powerful way to give life instead of death? Why? Um, We could walk out of here tonight and have the best life this side of eternity in our marriage if we just would love the power of words and start using them in those areas. We could do it, right? What is it? What makes it hard for us? Well, Jesus gives us the reason why we cannot do this without his help. The mouth is controlled by that which fills the heart. Matthew 7 states this, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. So it's out of the overflow of the heart that thoughts come and the mouth speaks, right? These things come out of the heart, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and so on. 
And then Matthew 15:11 says, "Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what speaks." So there's hearts activity going on. Uh, and when we think about that, these are the questions: What's going on in the heart? Desires, what I trust or hope in most, what I love most, what I fear most. If you were to evaluate what you love most tonight, in other words, you're commanded to love God and your neighbor. Jesus says that if you evaluate your loves tonight, what you love most, according to Jesus, you'll understand why you have communication problems. What you love most. See, what you love most, you what? You sacrifice for and what? You, you have energy for it. I mean, if you love tonight money, I'm telling you what, and you've got the promise tomorrow to make $5,000 in a day. You're going to bed excited about tomorrow, right? Now, who in this room wouldn't be excited about that? See what sinners know. We can also turn that. (laughs) You have something better than $5,000 to gain tomorrow. Deeper intimacy with Christ and with your spouse, which is more valuable. See, what you love most, you're going to give your energy to. It's going to get exposed. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, or should we say not speaks, right? And then what I, ho- what I hope for most, or trust, trust and hope very much related. What do you look forward to the most this week? Do you have something? Or this month? Or this next year? Or this decade? Or the rest of your life? What do you look forward to the most? The Bible says set your hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Looking forward to that moment when Christ girds himself and serves us. That's what the scripture says he'll do. He will serve us. Isn't that amazing? We need to build that hope up in our mind and our mouth will speak better when we are disappointed with smaller hopes this side of heaven. You see what I'm saying? It's a heart issue. It's a, it is a love issue. In other words, it's a hope issue. And the lastly would be a fear issue I will make reference to. What do you dread most? I mean, what gives you the heebie-jeebies more than anything if you think about it happening? And what if you lost it? What if you lost would be the hardest devastation in your life to to accept? What if you lost it? According to what you fear most, so it'll control your thoughts. It'll control your preoccupations. If you're concerned about retirement plummeting with the economy, you're going to have a hard time being pleasant when the economy is bad. But if you fear the Lord, I promise you the Lord is never bad. And it will be clean to you. And you'll have stability because he'll be your greatest fear in a good way, healthy way. You see, so Jesus has to fix our love and our hope and our fear. And how he does that is he pays the price for us falling short of that on the cross. Because God expects perfection in behavior and heart. Jesus pays the price for that. And then our sins are forgiven by faith. But he doesn't just forgive us. He gives us then a new heart. We're now a temple of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to come in and give us the ability to reorient what we're in life about. What's life about? It helps us understand how love should be toward God, how we should hope in Him. It helps us understand to fear the Lord more than anything else. So out of that new heart for Him that we're given in the Gospel, we're to renew that with new thoughts. And every time we, we meet here together, I hope you can here that I am pouring into commands these thoughts to help stir the new heart in Christ, the new love, the new fear, the new hope 
so that then we'll get these new habits going as a basis of the new heart, right? It's a new heart and new habits. So that's why you need Jesus to fix your communication problem because you have a heart issue like us all. And we need to grow in that. So five essential heart attitudes in all relationships. If we are regenerate, if we have been given the Holy Spirit, if we have the capacity to love new, to trust new, to fear new, then here's the reality. We can have these five qualities in Ephesians coming through in our relationships, which will help us talk better. So I've given you some examples of how these words could show up fighting against the old tendencies. All humility, which means thinking of others as more important than what? Yourself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, defined by the life of Christ. My wife wants to talk to me. Here's how pride sounds. I have something better to do. And it may not come out of my mouth. It's in my thoughts. If I'm proud and I'm focused in on something better than her, right, then I'm going to be very ugly in my response. Humility, though, says, no, let me put it aside. I remember my wife came into the office when I was at a church up north one time. This is so vivid. She came in. She had something really exciting to share with me. And I was working on some life-changing thing, of course, you know, working, studying, and mulling over some good thoughts and busy with that. And I'm sitting there working. She walks in the door, all her beauty, long black hair, brown eyes and all that. I didn't notice any of that. It wasn't very important to me at that time. I was into something very significant here. And she said something and, and I kind of did that typical, oh, uh-huh. And she did it about two or three times and then she shut the door and then I realized two minutes later, I think my wife just came through here. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Because my mind was saying, I have something more urgent to work on. I don't have time for this. I have something better to do. Uh, sad. My lifeblood wasn't flowing into that friend area, was it? I wasn't saying, you can stop here anytime and talk to me when you want. This would be good. Now, if she did it too much, we'd have to work on that, right? The reality is she doesn't. All gentleness. Paul calls us that if we've tasted of the gospel, if we have been dealt with God with gentleness, then we're to be gentle. And how would that show up in our communication? How stupid are you would not be how it shows up, is it? Have you ever thought that, even if you didn't say that? You know, this is ugly, isn't it? This is not humble gentleness in our communication. I don't have time to talk instead of all patience. When you love and trust and fear God and then you get married, your devotion now is for God and for your spouse and no one is to share that. I hope you understand that. Now, others can benefit from that. But my primary two relationships in life, according to 1 Corinthians 7, is not my children. They're a big part of us, but they're not just a big part of me. It's my wife and my, my Lord. And so if I say I don't have time to talk, then my priorities must be messed up, right? Must be messed up. Forbearance, which means overlooking. I just don't want your company could be a response that we give. I just don't want your company. That shows a sign of, of bitterness. And we'll talk about that in the first rule of communication in a minute. Bitterness can creep in and make us struggle to be forbearing, overlooking sin. And I want to go back to your body analogy just for a minute. This word forbearance is well demonstrated in your body. It's immune system. You have an immune system tonight, just like I do. 
and it tries to destroy those things that are destroying the body, right? It tries to get rid of them. Uh, it has not done a perfect job today. don't mean to freak you out, but there are things going in your body that it's not healthy. Uh, and it's deciding in a priority list what's most important to go after, and that's what it's going after. And it's leaving some of the other stuff best it can. Now, I'm not a doctor, but and I, I hope I wouldn't be correct on what I just said, but that's my understanding of the immune system. So in relationships, do you see how the body is overlooking certain things to figure out what's most important to deal with? Because if we go after it all, we're going to have a health crisis. You know what I mean? We're going to not have the nourishment to build up certain things to sustain life because we're after fixing it all. And that's how some relationships are. They're not forbearing with each other. They say, there's too many issues. I've had enough. I'm not putting up with it anymore. And I'm going after it all. All or nothing, baby. And that's kind of the opposite of forbearing, right? Priority. The last one is all diligence. All diligence to preserve in this great concept, unity of the spirit. Now, we have to understand unity of the spirit to understand the importance of diligence. But unity of the spirit means a unity that the spirit has designed and that alone can produce. We are to preserve that. It's a unity that the spirit has designed and he alone can produce it. Uh, Your father in heaven is more concerned about your marriage unity than you are. And the spirit is at work seeking to produce unity. He's doing that. And he's using your change to promote it. What kind of change? Diligence. It's more important that you seek to promote unity than anything else except one. And that is you don't compromise truth in the process. Truth takes a head over unity, but unity is very close. Romans 12:18. as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all women and men. <laughs> live at peace with all men. Right? So that's important. Diligence. Instead of what? I keep forgetting. That's a sign of not being diligent, isn't it? Now, don't hit each other over the head with that. But if I keep forgetting, it means I have a heart issue after a while, right? It's not a memory issue. I keep forgetting things. I don't forget certain things, right? Like my favorite show or, right, thing you want to get and eat when you get to the store and buy it. You don't forget certain things because they're important to you. Well, let's look at the five rules of communication now as we think of not only the heart, but now the principles. As we go through these principles, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul gives you thoughts to think in his scriptures that promote the new heart, a renewing of the heart, so that you will put this into practice when it gets tough. Five rules of biblical communication. The first one is gracious. Well, I say it this way, gracious responses versus angry reactions, but you have it proper, which is what? Put off angry reactions and put on gracious responses. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. You can see it up there on the screen. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. What a beautiful verse to start understanding how to talk to each other. Get rid of all those six things on the left there, or the ver- verse 31, and put on in replacement those three things on the right, or those three things in verse 32, with this new heart, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Right? The left side, all bitterness. 
You think about what bitterness is. It's a perceived injustice. Somebody cuts you off. You perceive you had the right to not be cut off, right? Right? God is angry, according to Psalm 711, every day. Because he has the right to not be cut off and be given 100% motivation for everything we do. It's to be for him. We don't do that perfectly. All have sinned, fall short of the glory, except one, Jesus, who paid the price. So our bitterness is reflective of God's sense of justice as well. But the problem is, when we start to go to God and say, can we discuss what I deserve? See, if I'm treated poorly, I always deserve to be treated worse in eternity than what I'm being treated on earth because I'm still alive. It's hard to believe, hard to understand, isn't it? That's a foreign thought. Some of you say, I'm not coming back there because he said I don't deserve. No, I did, I, what I want to say is you and I don't have rights. Humble people don't have rights. They, Before God, they have responsibilities. Did Jesus ever pick up his rights? No, he picked up his responsibility and served, right? He, that's what Jesus did. Humble people trust their rights to God. And then they obey him in dealing with that injustice. That allows them then to speak in love. That allows them to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Bitterness. If we don't resolve bitterness, though, it will lead to a progression. Watch what happens. After we get bitter, a perceived injustice is not resolved at the cross of Christ. What happens with another person? I start to have an energy to deal with that injustice. We call that wrath. Does your neck ever get hot? Someone does something to you and... Some people get shaky cold and other people get fiery hot, right? That's wrath. That's this sense of energy, adrenaline. The Bible speaks of God having wrath hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Hundreds of times. And it's often in the context of heat. The blast of his nostril, as it would say, in the, when they were grumbling in the desert. And he, his nostril blasted out like a fire dragon and killed the outskirts of the camp. That's what we have in a sense. When, a, when an injustice occurs, then our energy heats up and we have this wrath, an energy to deal with that. I'm going I'm to fix this. This isn't going to happen under my watch. Does this sound familiar at times coming out of your mouth? That's wrath, right? Take it back to bitterness and go to the cross, right? That's what we must do. Wrath, clamor is another, uh, or, or sorry, anger is another step down, wrath. And I guess I could go to my chart here, but anger is a punitive response to an injustice. What's punitive? Punishing. I will punish you. Two ways to punish you. I can withdraw from you or I can push you, right? I can pull away or push you. Blow up or clam up. They're both punishing responses. Apathy is a punishing response, right? Silence. You see how our heart, if we get bitter, we will never learn how to talk. Never. You cannot talk truth and love when you don't deal with bitterness at the cross. Right? So we have to get rid of all anger, all punishing responses. Isn't that a tall order? All punishing. But we can't get rid of all punishing responses if we don't get rid of all the energy. And we can't get rid of all that energy if we don't get rid of all the bitterness. Right? All those things that I deserve have got to go. And I've got to pick up my responsibilities. Now, there are three expressions of anger Paul gives here. Clamor. I'm avenging that wrong through what? Noise. 
What's that like? Stomping, snorting, grunting, even possibly hitting the wall, right? Those kinds of things. There's another form of Paul gives is slander, avenging wrong through noise. Slander is the word in the Greek, um, vilify the person. It's the idea of vilifying the person. You are a villain. It's not that you've just done hundred things wrong. You've done nothing right ever, right? That is slander. That is avenging and punishing them through hurting their reputation, getting other people on your side. Come on, be on, be in my jury. I just appointed your jury to this trial. Come here. I'm also the prosecutor too, <laughs> right? That's what we're doing. Justice will be served. And then the last one is malice. And this is where we tend to get into physical abuse. We avenge wrong through harming them, intent to harm them. We hurt them physically in some way. We hope they're get, they get hurt and then we do something wrong to them. We don't always get there. Some of us stop shy. Some of us just stay bitter all our lives and get quiet, right? Some of us get bitter and then move into ex explosive forms of anger. Paul's giving us these six. What do we do with that? How do we get rid of those? Well, Paul gives us three replacements to that. And here they are. Kindness, right? Kindness is a good deed towards the one that did the wrong intended to spiritually influence. Has God done that to us? Yeah. It's perfectly illustrated in the cross, isn't it? A good deed. Pretty good deed. Pretty big good deed, right? Tenderheartedness. This isn't a deed, but this is in the heart. This is a thought. So it's a good and true thought about an offender. A true and good thought like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they what? Know not what they do. Luke 23:34. Jesus had sympathy. He didn't minimize their sin, but he sympathized with it. And see, without being able to do that, we can't obey this verse. We can't even begin to talk right. Our bitterness will grow if we're not able to be tenderhearted. So you may be the kind of person that wants to hold on to injustice. Paul says replace that with tenderheartedness and kindness. And then lastly, forgiveness. Here's what God says. Isaiah 43:25. Even I, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us, right? So that's our God forgiving us instead of being bitter towards us. Instead of taking it out on us, exploiting us as he could do at any moment, he chooses instead to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Forgiving. The attitude of forgiveness a promise to remember the sin no more. We would call this public forgiveness. Now, I want to ask a trick question. Don't shake your head yes or no. Is everyone in the world forgiven? No. I'm going to shake your head for no. no one's, not everyone's forgiven. Only those, the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe or have the Son of God. Right? John 3. 1 John chapter 5, He who has the Son has life. I didn't say just believe in Him. Do you have Him? Right? There's a difference. Is he the life now for you? Right? So not everyone's going to heaven. Not everyone is forgiven. But everyone God does forbear. Forbear is different. Two words, forgiven. God is ready to forgive. He is ready. He is so uh, such a forgiving God. 
But he doesn't take away the guilt of that. But what does he do? He doesn't deal with them according to their sins right now. One day there will be hell to pay. So right now he overlooks sin. And so Paul would call us to forbear in Ephesians 4.1, right? 4.2. Remember, all humility, all gentleness, all patience, all what? Forbearance. Now, forbearance carries with it that idea that you see there, not dwelling on the offense and a trusting vengeance to God and trusting the case to God. What do I do? Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness or forbearance. Why is it important to understand that? The difference between forgiveness and forbearance. Because some people struggle with this idea that uh, how do I forgive someone when they keep repeating their sin? And I would say, well, if you understand forgiveness fully, you're not going to remove the responsibility to address the sin. Forgiveness would say, I'm going to remember it no more. You may have to, in love, speak truth right, to them. But you still come with a private forgiveness, a readiness to forgive. Mark 11.25 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And then Luke 17.3 says, if your brother sins, reprove him. If he repents, forgive. So we're ready to forgive. We have an attitude of forgiveness. We are sympathetic. We are kind. We are not saying, I will hold on to this bitterness. No, we are releasing it at the cross and entrusting it to God. So we're either forbearing people's sin or we're forgiving it, but we're always ready to forgive like God is, right? That's what Paul is saying here. So what do I say? What do we say? What would motivate me to do that? I mean, this is a tall order to all wrath. Do you take issue with that? Do you learn to have gracious responses instead of angry ones, right? For big and little stuff. Do you, are you learning to not be a bitter person who holds on to injustice? And learns instead to be sympathetic. So Paul is commanding here. What is the reason he gives us for doing that? What thoughts does Paul give us that should stir and renew the heart for God and spouse here? What thoughts should do that? Is it not at the end of Ephesians 4.32? Just as what? God in Christ has forgiven you. What if you take that little part of the verse out? What if you just black it out of your Bible? Now you just have commands, don't you? Is that what your Christianity is? Just a bunch of commands? You're not doing this well if that's all it is because you can't do it well without faith in what that says. God has treated you kindly and graciously. Now treat others the same way. There's a list of, of, of things in your notes there that help us to take this just as God to a heart level so that we can begin to get rid of bitterness, so that we can begin to speak words of health as friends as spiritual brothers and sisters, as lovers even. Here's a thought. So here's some thoughts to renew your mind when you're struggling if, as out of this verse. Am I, to, I am to deal with my spouse's offense just as God in Christ has dealt with what? Mine. The treatment of God towards my sin becomes the ruling motive and model for how I'm to deal with others' sin. That can get us started. Let's go to the next one. What sins of my past and present is God continuing to be kind, sympathetic, and forgiving towards? Can you give two? I want you to think for a moment. Can you give two in your own heart and mind? What sins is God continuing to be kind towards you in? 
If, if you don't have many, then you haven't looked well lately at the word in a, in a personal examination. Because you and I sin in, in ways that we don't even recognize many times, right? Job says that man sins like water, right? His iniquity is like water. It's part of our nature outside of Christ to sin, to do wrong. When is the last time someone, again, we'll go back to the highway. When is the last time someone cut you off and you were angry with them? And you say, well, angry, anger is righteous. Well, we'll, talk, we'll debate that another topic, another session. But my point is, I'm going to quote Matthew 5. that says, anyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of hell, guilty of the sin of murder. Right? It's pretty strong. Strong words. So, what sins? That will help you then in looking at your spouse's sin in a humble way. But there's more. Think of this I am to extend to my spouse this grace I have received from God. Ephesians chapter 1, back at our main book of the Bible that we're looking at these rules, says that God has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. He hasn't said, Well, when you get perfect, then. I will be this kind of graciousness to you. No, he has given himself to you fully. All that he is, is available for you in Christ. Your potential to walk in him and to have full relationship with him is as much as you want it to be. He's waiting on you in a sense, right? He is willing. The the greatest gift I have ever received in my life is, what would you say? I hope that you would say the reality, if you've received it, is God's gracious responses toward my sin. Sin is the big problem in our life. So the greatest gift I've been given is God's grace toward my sin. Instead of his wrath, instead of his anger, instead of his clamor, instead of him going around slandering me in heaven, which he wouldn't, but you know the reality is, instead of his malice toward me, instead of being bitter toward me, he has chosen in Christ to treat me as I don't deserve. When I choose to deal with my spouse's sins sinfully, this is maybe the biggest turning point if your heart is bitter tonight. When you choose to deal with your spouse's sins sinfully, you are provoking the Lord to cease His grace towards you. You say, well, that's not what my theology says can happen. Okay, I understand that and I probably would agree with you in many areas, but can I just give you some scriptures that would help you. I've listed them there. Listen to this. Mark 11.25 Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will forgive you as well. Interesting. Jesus said that. Well, let me theologically fix that. How about we just say faith in Christ produces that? You will get there. But you must get here. Mark, Luke 6.37 Do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Jesus Christ. Matthew 6.14 Then the Master called his servant. I'm sorry, no. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. Cause and effect. Forgiveness must mark the forgiven Christian. Or there's a problem with the forgiveness, right? Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they haven't received it. Either way, they need to get it. Right? That's what we're saying tonight. Then Mark, Matthew, Mark 6, 12. 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive those. As we. Interesting, isn't it? As we forgive those who have sinned against us. Let's not read something in there that isn't. It's there. (laughs) Right? Jesus says it four times. Go ahead. What were you saying? As you're saying that, my, my first response is, is it's a direct response back to the spouse, using sin, direct response. Yes. But the, as I'm listening to the scripture, that encompasses your whole life. That, I mean, you may, the way of a to, Christian. you may use their behavior to rationalize your behavior in a completely unrelated area, and it's still the exact same thing based on what you're saying scripturally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. The forgiveness we've received in Christ should have so impacted us that to walk around with I deserve is a, is a past thing. And when it starts to pop its ugly head because you provoke it, I go back and I remember the forgiveness, the debt. And this is a good way to end it. The last one, Matthew 11, eight, Matthew 18, listen to this. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back what he owed. And listen to this, verse 35. Jesus said, this is how my... Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Strong. Renew your heart and mind and get rid of all bitterness. Right? Next. My opportunity to grow in God's grace and character is strengthened most when my spouse is most unworthy. That's important because the goal of our life, according to God, is to share in His holiness in his nature. So he is using your marriage to train you to experience what it's like to be a forgiving person like he is. To be a, how good it is when treated wrong to respond right. That's what he wants to train you to taste. God has created the universe to display the glory of his grace. And you and I as Christians are in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation And when we respond graciously, not minimizing sin if it needs to be dealt with, but in a gracious way, right? Not a condemning way. Wow. Then God is glorified. We are the light of the world. So based on all the above, what is God calling me to do and say that would help my spouse most? That's where all this leads, right? In the heat of the battle, if you renew your mind and you see these six things to put off and three things to put on and have gracious responses versus justice responses, right? Or sinful, angry responses, then the bottom line question at that moment, so what would God have me say or do that will help my spouse most right now? Because that's the way he has treated me. Now again, we can say we don't like this, but we don't change the Bible because we don't like it. The Bible is to change us. And the sooner we realize God knows best and loves most, you don't, the sooner you'll accept every word from God's mouth and say, teach me. (laughs) Right? Instead of let me argue, let me point out, let me fight this. And not to minimize the pain, but to magnify the gain here. It's bigger than what you're losing in life, right? To share in his likeness. That's the first rule. Let's look at the second one and we're going to take a break. Here's the second one. Listen humbly. What is the first response of the regenerate believer in Christ who's had their sins forgiven. What's the first horizontal response after faith is given? According to Paul, Ephesians 4, verse 2, humble with all humility. How would humility affect listening? That's what we want to build this on. 
Much of this is taken directly from Wayne Mack's book, Your Family, God's Way, which I have often thought about. It would be a great time to do a retreat with just going through that book on communication because if there's anybody that digs into the detail of it, he does it. But it would take probably two days. So You can read the book, though. You could have your own conference at home, Your Family, God's Way with Wayne Mack. Uh, the, the prisoner of the Lord, walk with all humility. If communication is the lifeblood of all relationships, then good listening is prerequisite to all healthy relationships. Prerequisite. There's a spelling check for you, right? How do you spell that word? Prerequisite means I cannot communicate well to you if I don't hear what you are saying or if I don't have good audience awareness. One of the big differences between a great speaker and a good speaker is audience awareness. He was aware if people are connecting or not. And then he changes and adjusts what he says to try to help that person accept what he's saying, right? Instead of just, I've got this canned thing that Tim told me to come home and say to my spouse, right? Here it goes. I love you very much. You know, no, audience awareness. How do you love her? How do you express? What have you observed she desires? And you respond to that. Let's go to the body analogy on this one. What if the body wasn't telling the rest of the body what it needed? Or what it desired. What if part of the body said, I don't care what you would like. I'm going to give you what I want to give you. Right? <laughs> let, me, let me love you the way I want to love you. Well, we really could use something to clot the blood down here. No. I'm going to give you something to thin the blood. Okay? I've got a lot of that. I, I, I give that naturally. See, we have to listen in order to respond. Right? So good listening is so critical first to learning to speak. Audience awareness. We have some of us at times, and I'm in this boat, have poor spousal awareness, right? We just have spousal awareness trouble. We don't get the energy behind what they're saying. We don't get what they've even said. We don't even know that they're thinking that a hundred times, so they only said it once, right? We don't get all that information. Well, our God models good listening, and it increases our desire for him. Psalm 116.1, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. Right? Yeah, see, I, I, tr I try to give you the full effect. It's time to repent. <laughs> but I love the Lord because he heard my voice, my cry for help. He hearkened unto my cry. Does the Lord listen to you and his responses to listen to your crying increase your love for him, right? What if he didn't listen to you? What if he didn't care what you had to say? He listens. Who are we to say we don't have time to listen, right? We must participate in this divine nature of listening, right? Like our great high priest listens to us, right? What are you hearing as we're talking? You're hearing principles, right? Habits, good listening, specific. But you're also hearing renew your heart. Don't grow weary in this. There's an unseen reality going on that's worth the effort, right? Heart and habits, that's what this is about. Humility and love are required for good listening. These two essentials in the Christian life, humility and love, and last week we learned that faith expressing itself in love is all that matters, right? Love is sacrificial. Love is compassionate with no required return, right? It looks to God for the reward, faith. So love is required and humility are required. 
Humility and love. The humble heart believes things that cause your spouse to become more important than you. Right? Jesus believed things that made you more important than Him, which is why He came and inconvenienced Himself. He believed things about your welfare and about God's response to His sacrifice that made Him say, I will go. I will go. Ephesians chapter 1 would would tell us, and we'll see this next week, that the purposes of God in many regards was to present to the Son a bride whom He would purchase with His blood. From eternity past, you were chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before God in Christ. And then He would talk about marriage four chapters later and say, Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church who gave Himself to make a bride holy and blameless before Him. So all eternity past, this plan of God So Christ believed these things about God's plan was good. God's plan was worthwhile. And he believed your welfare then was more important than his. And look what has happened, right? So in the same way, without this kind of believing God, we can't have humility. Without this believing God, we can't have love. It will die in that desert at times. So good theology, as we learned last week, leads to love. The goal of our instruction is love you prove yourself to be Christ follower by your love. Now, it doesn't take much humility. Oh, you've got that there. It doesn't take much humility to talk. But it takes a lot to listen. What I'm working on is more important than what you want to talk about. My son, when he was four years old, was the first time I heard his voice on the phone. It may have been younger than that. I don't know. And he told me a story about something that probably had to do with Buzz Lightyear or some small talk, right? And I was, again, working on some life-changing message and some life-changing issue. And I was on the phone and I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he said it again because he could tell even at that young age, not picking up the excitement here, Dad. You're my friend, you know. I said, uh-huh, yeah. And said a third time. Finally, he said, Dad and his little three or four-year-old, are you listening? And it hit me. It was like, boy, I have got to learn to be humble. Why do I think I am the full equation of what people need to hear, right? <laughs> Right? Well, it's because it's important. Yeah, but it's to be lived out in love. It's to be lived out. This is going to teach me how to listen better. And then I know I've learned it. Right? And then I get more full of the experience of God's work in me. Right? Just through that listening to a three-year-old. Here's what humility says. Your interest, your concerns, your problems, your successes, failures are more important than mine in terms of listening. I will listen to whatever you have to say as long as it's proper, biblically proper. I'll allow you to express yourself fully. I yield myself to you. Let's focus on what's most important to you than what's most important to me. Where is that person, right? That's God, Jesus, as he sympathizes with us and listens to our prayers, every one of them, right? But it also is me, honestly, before I got married. I was was more easily naturally uh, enamored by the worth of my wife and the acquisition of that relationship, right? And so I would do whatever she wanted to do. I would talk about whatever she wanted to talk about. She thought I just had every desire she had, right? And I did at that time because I had a heart change toward her. And then as we go on through life, we realize, well, we do have to do other things than just listen to each other, right? We've got to have children and work and all that. So we get distracted from the value of our spouse, right? And then what's going to bring us back to that value? 
the value of our spouse? No, oftentimes by the time we recognize and woke up to it, our spouse may have become sinful too. And we're like, well, I don't really have much motivation. They don't want to really have a good relationship with me. That's often where we're at, right? So we must rebuild that on the basis of our heart for God, right? And his promise to work through us back to if not reacting sinfully to their reaction to our sin, right? And that's what we have to hear. So important that we get back to the reason that we have humility in our life is because God has humbled himself and blessed us through his humility. Right? That's why we want to be humble. and God will respond to us. So we want to develop good listening habits. It's the first half of being an effective communicator. So I'm going to give you a test as we walk through these Six areas. I want you to score yourself one to five in these areas, okay? And so there's a total score of 30 possible. Now, don't do the math yet. Don't cheat. Just go ahead and you be honest. One to five. One is really bad you're doing, and uh, five is you've done, you do really good in that area. You humbly value and give much consideration to the opinions and counsel of your spouse. Do you do that? Um, do you do that? One is one is bad. Five is good. So we want a high score for Pharisees, right? <laughs> do you value the opinions of your spouse, right? Um, in other words, you recognize that until their opinion is heard, you only have half the equation, right? Do you think of it that way? Right. Well, no, I, I know it more than her or him. Yeah, but God has made you one. Do you listen to the other side of your mind? <laughs> right? You respectfully hear what your spouse has to say about a concern before giving your opinion. You don't give your opinion till you hear what your spouse has to say. Proverbs 18.2 says that the fool does not delight in understanding, but in only revealing his own mind. That's a very proud response, isn't it, to relationship. You won't listen well with that belief, right? How you doing so far? Not too good? Great, let's play golf. Yep. You refrain from drawing conclusions or coming up with a response until you have really listened carefully, factually, emotionally, biblically, practically. Like, for instance, that's interesting when they say something, right? Now, you can mimic these or you can really have these sincerely realizing this is my spouse. This is my uh, one flesh partner. I can really relate to that. Does that ever come out of your mouth when your spouse is talking? Or it's like, that's stupid, you know, or does nothing come out? Uh, Tell me one more time your perspective. Do you help them bring that out or do you say, shut that up, right? There's a reality to that. You seek to help your spouse fully communicate and think through their point of view, even if it differs from yours, by asking good questions. Are you saying that you would like, so you're really struggling with this issue? I'm glad you told me so I can try to help. How would you like me to help could be a question, right? So do you seek to help your spouse fully communicate? And think through that in a biblical way. Uh, you assume always that part of your viewpoint on an issue is biased because it's based on insufficient data colored by self-interest. I know I'm not seeing all that you are, 
or I probably would be tempted to feel like you do. Do you ever have that thought? You just shut them down. That is true. I know that I'm not seeing everything because if I if I sell all the things you're seeing, then I would be tempted to feel like you feel. Now, I will often do that just so I can get into someone's life to help them change the way they see something. Did you hear what I just said? That's a humble response. I'm not sitting here saying, okay, first of all, you got to stop feeling that way. It's just stupid. Let, let me first start off by saying, you know, obviously you're seeing some things. I can't know if they're true or not. But if I really saw what you're seeing and perceiving, then I'd be tempted to probably feel this way. Let me help work through this a little bit. Maybe there's something you need to see different. So, see, that's humble, isn't it? That's getting outside my experience. I am the center of the universe in opinions, right? No, I don't have that. I'm not God. You are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry with your spouse. James 1.19 So good listening is quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Maybe it's not as bad as it looks, right? And some of us parents can understand what I'm saying when you hear a noise and you go and you see something bad that happened and you just want to go ahead and point the finger and condemn them to the bedroom for the rest of the week or something, right? Quick to listen. So maybe it's not as bad. Maybe there's some information that would color the jury's verdict so they don't get life sentence here. Maybe they get two years good behavior, right? So if you scored, tally your scores up, and there's what we would look at, A, B, C, D, F, right? In our scale, so we, there is a curve. God is gracious, but in his graciousness, realize that if you score high in listening, then you've got good communication potential because now you have spouse awareness. Those That was spouse awareness questions there. Am I aware of what's going on inside my spouse? I remember the first time that I recognized the importance of unlocking my wife's information because she's a very quiet, peaceful person for the most part. I did say for the most part, right? So we were on our way somewhere on my day off as a pastor, and we were going, and I said something about how good it was going to be and this and that, and I could see her kind of sitting there just quietly looking nervous. It's like, that's not like Erin. What's she nervous about? And I said, what's wrong, honey? Was something wrong? And she said, well, I don't know. And I had to help her think through what was wrong. She didn't wasn't used to expressing herself. I said, well, can you tell me what was it you were concerned about back there? Because it looked like you started getting nervous. She said, well, we passed by a grocery store and there was something that I needed to pick up for you for dinner tonight, but I know you probably don't want to stop by the store to waste time. And I was concerned about that. And I had two responses. Have I really been that bad already? <laughs> And the other thing is, wow, I really have to be careful here in this relationship because if I'm not have audience awareness, she may just kind of emotionally check out on me. And I don't even know it because she can put up with more internally. Me, if it's in my heart, it's often in my mouth, right? It's like Timmy, we have a three-year-old at home and he just has to tell you everything, everything. And uh, it's good and bad, isn't it? My wife's a little bit different than that. So... If you're at a letter D, if you've got a D here, you need to realize your lifeblood is not pulsing well because you're not listening well. 
you might be sending a lot of words out, but you're not giving the right words because you're not hearing what is being said. Now, there is a great assignment you have here on page 26. And we're going to shorten this assignment, but we're going to practice this assignment right now. And when we do this, I know some people feel odd about this. If, if your spouse isn't here, it's okay. Mine isn't either. We'll just be two peas in a pod. But I would like to ask those whose spouse is here, we're going to practice something that if you've been doing the biblical, counseling, uh, biblical change journal, you've had opportunity three times a week to do this. So we're going to do it right now. But we're going to shorten it. It takes 15 minutes. We're only going to take part of that time. Use the following 3211 assignment to practice humble listening with your spouse. And you'll be amazed if you do this daily in faith that the mind of Christ will be formed in you and your pleasurable companionship with your spouse will increase dramatically. This is especially true for men because we don't realize what value is in communication because we only do about a third of the words often than our spouse does, right? We can have a good relationship with 7,000 words a day. Don't you think so, men? Right? I think 21,000 muddies the water, don't you? (laughs) Here's 3211. So for three minutes, one spouse shares with the other uninterrupted. I'm going to be your timekeeper here, okay? What are you going to share with your spouse? Well, four things. You have them listed there. What are you thankful for? And the second thing is something you heard from the Word tonight or lately that challenged you or encouraged you. Share something you really appreciate about your spouse. And then fourth, a prayer request. This is practicing lifeblood in these areas, isn't it? Spiritual companionship, friend companionship, lover companionship. It's all there. So would you go ahead and, man, I'm going to have you go first, okay? I'm going to keep time. Uh, You have two minutes, man. I'm only going to give you two minutes. So go through those four things and share those with your wife. And your wife should be able to reflect back what you've said. So let's let you do that. Go ahead. You have three, two minutes. Go for it, man.